Greetings, future fossils. This is Michael Garfield welcoming you to another episode of the podcast that explores our place in time. (laughs) And if you feel, as I do, that even though we've blown past one transformation deadline after another, we are nonetheless accelerating into the ineffable that the proliferation of the kind of wicked problems we discussed in the last episode with Terry Patton that the necessary transformations happening in our educational and learning processes discussed in episode 39 with Hunter Motts, that the kind of metadisciplinary thinking performed and articulated by Sean S. Bjorn Hargens in episode 60, that our changing definitions of nature and wilderness that expand to absorb human effort and technology and culture, as discussed in episode 50 with Ayanna Young, (sighs) that all of these are symptoms of the way that what Richard Doyle calls the infoquake of our hyperconnected age is speeding the institutions and practices of science, art, and spirituality toward one another on a collision course with our humility before the majesty of the unknown. And it is calling us all forward to participate in new modes of collective sense-making. We begin to form the internal communications network of a new planetary organism that rolls out of bed and decides what it will do next. And judging by the as-above-so-belowness of our fractal biosphere, it seems likely that the collective decision will be some combination of heal thyself and go west, young man. (laughs) Which is to say that the actionable goals of any kind of planetary consensus are likely to boil down to sustainability of the biosphere and reproducibility of the biosphere or namely the satisfaction of our basic survival needs and the existential questioning discovery curiosity creativity and play that comes when we feel safe what happens when the human species is beyond crisis where do we go and the answer is i think for most people relatively obvious That it's beyond, whether that's into the inner horizon of contemplative practice or outward, where no one has gone before. That once we lay our fears to rest, we find that call to go explore. And also, yes, sometimes that call comes as necessity, the need to seek outside the familiar for answers to the stickiest and most difficult problems. It's in this tension that I invite you to celebrate with me this week's guest, David Krakauer, president of the Santa Fe Institute for Complexity Sciences and the head of a new initiative there, the Interplanetary Project, which begins in earnest this June 7th and 8th with a two-day festival to set the tone of an international and vastly transdisciplinary group imagination project about the future of our species and our planet into which everyone is invited. And I am very excited to share our conversation with you. But first, I want to give a special thanks to this week's new Patreon supporters, The Technocracy, which is Gray Scott's unapologetically transhumanist podcast. A delight if you're interested in future news. Also, Chad McCarn and Vic Simon both threw down in a big way this month as new patrons. Thank you so much, everybody. All 122 paying supporters and all 83 people who have reviewed this show on iTunes. I've been really lucky so far to have amazing guests for a small show like this. But the busier somebody is, the more those numbers matter. So thanks to everybody who's been helping this show in any way, sharing, talking about it with your friends. I really appreciate it, and it helps me find the time to release extra episodes like I will be doing this summer. And of course, 
There is a lively conversation going on in the Future Fossils Facebook group. That's a fabulous way to meet the rest of the community and stay abreast of daily news and other goofery. And that's it for now. Got some really great episodes coming up, including conversations with George Dvorsky of io9, cybersecurity specialist Dylan Curran, and of course, my friend, legendary psychonaut, the Tea Fairy. But for now, kick back and relax and enjoy this fine conversation with David Krakauer of the Santa Fe Institute. David Krakauer, it's a pleasure to have you. Oh, thank you for having me. So, where shall we begin? Let's see, you're leading a uh, sort of massive interplanetary vision project at the Santa Fe Institute, and... Um, you have some sort of, uh, collectively speaking, you're holding some, some rather large ambitions for the future of our species. So I'd love to hear um, a little bit about that particular project as, you know, as a subset for the Santa Fe Institute and how it came to pass. Yeah, so, um, so the Santa Fe Institute is the sort of world headquarters of complexity science. And... Complexity science basically is a science of adaptive systems. Um, and we've developed over the years many methods and techniques for analyzing those systems from cells, societies, ecosystems, civilizations, and so on. And, and in that work, um, we've come to realize that one of the major obstacles to making progress is the way that we tend to carve things up into disciplines uh, as if economic considerations had no impact on the environment or as if um, you could have an understanding of human potential without understanding technology and so on. And that's how schools are structured. It's how universities are structured. It's how most research institutes are structured. And when we were founded, um, we decided to do away with all that nonsense. <laughs> and so... Um, and so we've been working away, beavering away at trying to understand how the world really works the connected world really works. Um, and we realize that we haven't been as successful as we'd like to in getting those new ideas out into the world. And we think they should be out in, in, in the world because they're important ideas, right? Because it's not okay <laughs> to treat technology as if it were not connected to ethics or um, AI didn't have an implication about how we reason about history or the economy and so on. Okay, so that's one part of it, that, that the work that we do, we need a way of communicating that more widely to a broader group of people. At the same time, um, you know, we're living with a very densely populated Earth um, where the implications of a, of a single individual's actions percolate across the whole planet. Um, and yet we behave as if that wasn't the case. We, we've inherited habits from an era where that wasn't the case. And, uh, and that's another factor, which is you are now connected to the whole planet in really interesting ways. Uh, we know that's true through media, the kind of thing that you do, um, reaching people everywhere. Um, but it's also true in our behavior and in, in what we consume and in, in the ideas that we put out into the world, um, in our politics and everything else. So that was another factor. And so, okay, <laughs> how do we address all of this? How do we get all this new science and this new way of being, this new global way of being in the world? How do we get that consciousness out into the world and the universe? Okay. <laughs> and so we conceived of the interplanetary project. And um, I, I want to give a little background on this because... One of the things that we do is what people would call interdisciplinary science, right? That we, I don't know, that we live in an environment with archaeologists and quantum physicists and biologists and so on, right? And many years ago, I was asked to give a uh, lecture to a group of high school students and their teachers about interdisciplinary science. And I thought there could be no more boring talk than a talk on... I mean, imagine how boring that would be. 
campaign finance reform, maybe. maybe. Right, but would you go? I mean, tomorrow, Friday night, Game of Thrones, or interdisciplinary science starring X. Okay, so that... <laughs> yeah, well, I'm asking the right guy. Because, well, maybe I'm asking the wrong guy, right? So, um, so I thought about it, and I, and I came to a sort of a little mini epiphany. So I went to this conference, and I asked the audience, if we were going to send a mission to Mars, who would you put on the spaceship? And kids would put their hands up, and they said, oh, an astronaut. I said, yep, yeah, that's good. Who else? A doctor. Great. Who else? And you can see right, an engineer. Who else? A botanist. Who else? And so all of a sudden, with no training, with no awareness of the way that the university is structured, no understanding of interdisciplinary science, everyone immediately understood that a real problem like that one, a hard problem, would require a kind of diversity of expertise and insight that we do everything in our power to eliminate <laughs> or reduce. And so that planetary perspective um, seemed incredibly powerful as a vehicle for um, presenting this idea that ideas are connected, ideas aren't, don't live in boxes, um, and neither do real-world problems. So that's, that's part of it. Uh, the other part of it was just a fascination with human behavior in collectives, right? Um, people love to go to concerts. People love to go to movies. Um, the, there's a whole world of festivals. You have one in Austin, of course, a very famous one, centered around music, but there's Burning Man. And, and I sort of asked myself, where's the festival for my peeps? <laughs> I where's- say that every time South by Southwest is in town. I'm like... <laughs> But, you know, it's great, right? But, but there's something missing. And, um, and it's not that these aren't all wonderful. It's just that there's something missing. And what, what's missing, I think, is the spirit of the world fair. In the, if you go back far enough, there were these very aspirational events where people genuinely believed they were discussing what the future would look like. And they were doing so in a very constructive way, by and large. And they were doing so across boundaries, national boundaries, disciplinary boundaries. It was fun, but it was also informative, right? Um, and so that was the sort of gestalt. That was the kind of um, image that I carried in my head. Could that be done now? And so the Interplanetary Festival is closest to the World Fair, right? Because it's it is fun, right? I mean, people should go and love it. People should go for the music. People should go for the art. People should go for the science fiction. But they should also go for the science. And, and understand that these things are inextricably bound. And they're enriched by being together. They're not diluted by being together. Um, so I guess that's some of the sort of cultural background. It's a lot, but that's that, that went into this. So you brought up a lot there. And I, I, I kind of want to try and stitch it together and then... Uh, lob it back at you and see where the riff takes us because you know you're mentioning um that i've been thinking a lot about this book the age of discovery by golden and kutarna which Uh is uh you know basically comparing our age to the the renaissance of you know 15th 16th centuries and using that as an extended metaphor to explain what kind of changes we're living through now and one of the things that they make clear very early in this book is that during a period of renaissance the edge of the map becomes the center of a new map and you know you talk about this in the sense that we're still acclimating ourselves to a a a map that doesn't really a map of the planet anyway that doesn't have the sort of world horizons that we're accustomed to you know timothy morton talks about this in his book hyperobjects that we used to think about climate as a local regional thing the climate of southern england the climate of central texas now whenever we're talking about the weather we're aware that the weather is just a symptom of this hyper object called climate change called the global climate and it's and so now whenever we're talking about something local in particular we're actually in some cases uncomfortably aware that it's a part of this much bigger thing and so 
uh, Tim Morton suggests that that's because we sort of lose the foreground background distinction there, that that's the end of the world in the sense that a world is created by fuzzing out the periphery, that we're intensely aware of the, of the peripheral, of the off world, of all the, you know, of the hundreds or thousands of habitable exoplanets, you know, there's, there's this, um, the background is now calling to us in a way that it didn't before. And you bring that up in the, uh, in the promotional video for the interplanetary project, talking about the ambition of changing the world one planet at a time. This notion yeah. that our idea of the world is sort of now broken or insufficient and that it's time to replace it with something bigger. Which, again, you want to talk about the history of the World's Fair. The World's Fair has its sort of intellectual origin in the London exhibition at the Crystal Palace in 1851 or 52, where they took the entire park and encased it in a glass dome and basically said, we are now... You know, we are miniaturizing nature and we are in charge of it. And it was sort of the, the, the sounding shot of a technocratic modern approach. And now, you know, having moved into this age of complex dynamical systems, that, that sort of uh, hubris no longer serves us. And it's funny to hear you talk about, you know, inviting, soliciting these marginal perspectives, children, children's perspectives. Yeah. Or, or uh, you also mentioned in the video the need to recruit people into this project regardless of their nationality, their economic station. You know, so there's a sense in which the, uh, the, the margins of the map are now the center of the map. And I'm, I'm curious how you see that in the way that the conversation around this stuff is being deployed, in, in the way that we're no longer simply seeking to, you know, dominate and conquer but, you know, to sort of move from an understanding of natural systems and apply that understanding and apply the crowd intelligence of the entirety of our species to these projects and, and so on. No, it's, so you, you, you have as many questions as I had in my, in my uh, remarks. I think it's interesting what you say. I'll give you one example that's very inspirational for me, and it shows you how divided we can be on the same insight. Um, so... Let's think about the theory of evolution, Charles Darwin's particular interpretation. That's an interesting case because what that did for me is it demonstrated that all life on this planet is related, that I'm a distant cousin of a tree. And that's a source of enormous comfort to someone like me. Other people were offended by it because um, they wanted, for some reason that I don't fully grasp, by the way, human exceptionalism, um, our uniqueness was the source of comfort, that, that somehow the rest of the world was unlike us and that was somehow comforting. I can't see how that can be comforting. My, I have a very, very lonely perspective. I'm much more interested in the companionship perspective. So that was a good example whereby extending the boundaries of what it meant to be sentient, what it meant to be living, changed not only... Um, the way that we reasoned about our place in nature, but had existential, I think, and ethical implications in society. And so I tend to like that comparative, continuous perspective to existence. And I think that if you think about the planet, and this has been said by many people, Buckminster Fuller included, um, that you can't understand quite how incredible the Earth is unless you look at some of the surrounding planets in our solar system, which, to the best of our current knowledge, are devoid of life, um, and certainly aren't as spectacular uh, atmospherically as, as our own planet um, when seen from space. And I think you only appreciate value comparatively. If you only ever had chocolate ice cream you would never realize how terrible vanilla was, right? I mean, that's my, you know... Um, and I think once you've tried vanilla, then you realize, oh, my God, chocolate really is that good, you know? So I think that, I, I think that, that basically is true. I mean, there is no absolute. Um, there are only relatives. Um, and, there are, and by virtue of that perceptual fact, um, the, it, it's important for us to establish comparatives and um, comparisons. So that's one answer to your question. I think it's critical to extend the boundaries of how we reason about a particular system because only in relation to other objects that are similar to them can we truly appreciate what they are. 
Um, so that, that, that's one view. The other one um, that you get at in terms of inclusiveness and so on gets to my opening remarks about complexity. Um, yes, you can move along in your life in a, in a bubble, um, imagining that um, no one else matters and that um, no one has anything else to contribute to you or your life or and so on. I mean, that's a possible thing. Um, I mean, it's ridiculous and it's misguided, uh, but you can expand it and allow others, uh, other minds, other species, um, other planets, to enter into your consciousness. Um, and I think it is genuinely enriching. I think it, it, it in, a, in a sense, I mean, it's, to my mind, one of the extraordinary valuable things about consciousness, the fact that we do get to appreciate so much more diversity. So I think that um, if you believe, as I do, that you do better work collaboratively, you have better ideas by having an appreciation of history, you do better work by drawing on talent very broadly construed, you live a better life if you can have an artistic and scientific contribution. If you believe in all those things, then you have to take this more panoramic and global uh, perspective on, th on the matter. And I think interplanetary, in that sense, right, has this sensibility that is expansive and inclusive as opposed to being myopic and exclusive. Uh, it's, it's, it's not, in some sense, the central conceit or premise of interplanetary, I mean, the central premise is we're sitting on top of ideas that could improve the world. And if we can bring those ideas to, to thoughtful people, they can be a part of that. But there are these other, if you like, almost metaphysical implications of that insight uh, along the lines that, that you described and I described. So there is a, an elephant in the room in any conversation about interplanetary exploration or even for that matter the the space station like i remember listening to a panel discussion by the lindisfarne association from like 1972 uh there's a you know a great the lindisfarne tapes at the ef schumacher center for new economics and there's this this rather um feisty panel between people like astronaut rusty schweikert and i want to say lynn margulis and maybe greg bateson was on that panel you know like some real heavy hitter you know, 20th century thinkers, and they were debating whether or not it was ethical to create a space station, to invest in all of this. And it was funny because it was the astronaut who was actually saying basically that this is, um, you know, this is a military industrial enterprise, blah, blah, blah. You know, I think that it's ultimately bad. And yet what you're talking about is not just, you know, paying lip service to diversity in the workplace or accepting other people's religious faiths. It's you know, recognizing the role of, you know, neurodiversity and an ecological approach to problem solving, but then also as maybe a correlate to that, this, uh, this sense that the future will be an, a both and type future rather yeah. than an either or type future. Yeah. So I know that you must catch a lot of heat yeah. being, being yeah. in the sort of public seat yeah. with this about yeah. whether or not it's even ethical, especially yeah. when you get into these like weird people, like, pundits like Stephen Hawking basically saying we have to leave the earth or you know it's like there's it feels like the discourse around this is totally warped and I'm curious you know how you how you handle that particular ethical yeah. issue in that I'm, I'm not sure I handle it very well but, uh, but I do have to handle it and I think yeah I have it I have two takes on it um, I mean broadly construed uh, first of all the the, the tagline of the festival is changing the world one planet at a time, not changing planets one world at a time. And, and the premise, as you, you can see right away, is what is that? What is that trying to say? It's trying to say the following. It's saying that there are two ways of solving problems. And, and just for the sake of discussion, let's call one incremental and one revolutionary. And they're both great, <laughs> okay? Um, the incremental approach says is what we typically do, right? We say, what is the problem? Let's specify all the components of the problem, let's find the tools that are necessary to solve the problem, and so on. And that's great. And, but there's another way of doing it, and that is setting yourself a vastly harder problem. And you know you'll never solve the vastly harder problem, 
But you're going to solve the problem en passant, right? That's the sort of premise. And, and there's nice literature on this, actually, um, this notion of obliquity, right? That if you directly try to solve the problem, you, you typically lose it. Um, whereas if you sort of pretend not to be solving it and you sidestep it, uh, then, you can, then you can truly grasp it. And I think the history of science, we know this to be the case right, in our fields, that it's often the case that an insight or discovery that served one purpose proved to be extraordinarily valuable in a very different domain. I mean, just to make an obvious remark, when Newton and Leibniz were developing the calculus uh, to, be, to build, in their case, in some cases, not very ethical things, weapons, or uh, to explain, in Newton's case, um, the trajectories of, of, of masses um, under some force. Now, that mathematics is integral to everything we do, including studying epidemics and developing vaccines. There is no way that Newton or Leibniz imagined that the mathematics that they were developing for celestial mechanics would transform our understanding of infectious disease. So that's the sort of, with that knowledge of the history of ideas, um, the Interplanetary Festival says, what would it take to terraform Mars? What would it take to create a global stable economic system? What would it take, etc. right? And um, with the idea that if you could do that, right, then solving a water shortage in Saudi Arabia becomes a more manageable, tractable, tractable problem. In other words, it, it, it puts you mentally into a space where the problem is so vast that the techniques and ideas that you have to engage with are so atypical uh, that there's a real prospect of solving a much more pedestrian problem, which would nevertheless be a very important problem on our planet today. So that's, that's one thing, this idea that let's just be unbelievably um, ambitious and, and in our ambition discover along the way uh, solutions to real-world problems. The other side of this is, was actually articulated by another astronaut, Frank Borman, um, of Apollo 8 fame, when he was asked the same question, and his answer was, isn't that what we are? Um, ultimately, our quest is existential, and utilitarian considerations serve existence, not the other way around. And I share that view very deeply. I think that the pragmatic considerations only exist by virtue of serving our existential, and if you like, spiritual requirements. And I mean that in a very um, liberal sense. So I'm with Frank Borman on this. I think we are an exploratory form of adaptive matter. Not only humans, by the way. Um, birds, beetles, butterflies also. Um, they're all migratory and we're mentally migratory. And I think that it doesn't help us to deny that fact. Mm. You know, there's to add to that, or, you know, it's sort of uh, the third corner of that triangle. You know, I think about uh, you, Santa Fe Institute is in town just a few miles away from the Synergia Ranch, you know, and the Institute of Ecotechnics built Biosphere 2. And, yeah. you know, they built Biosphere 2 after, uh, you know, their sort of visionary, uh, John Allen, was involved with uh, a secret intergovernmental Mars survey program between the U.S., U.K., and Russia in the 1970s. There is a sense in which, at least from their point of view, which I really deeply admire and resonate with, that these two aims, the sustainability of life on Earth and the exploration of life in space, are not even... Um, that basically they're not only not mutually exclusive, that one cannot be accomplished without the other. Yeah, and I don't, I, I don't know if that's true. I mean, it might be true, right? I'm not sure. I, I mean, it, it's quite interesting, by the way. Um, look what's happening in artificial intelligence. It's kind of an interesting example of this, because which would actually maybe endorse your point, that we were working for years and years on trying to understand how the human brain worked. And we continue to do so, and with some limited progress. And, um, 
And it was thought for a long time that the only way you'd ever build an intelligent machine was when neuroscience or cognitive science or psychology made the breakthroughs necessary to give us sufficient understanding to deploy in condensed matter or in silicon chips or in what have you, in software. And it proved proved to be not the case. Um, What proved to be the case, I think, shocked a lot of people, which was, no, we're going to come up with this science fiction view which we can build a superintelligence that will destroy human intelligence in very particular domains, chess, go, you know, and so forth. And that proved to be at least to date, the much more successful strategy, much to the annoyance, by the way, of the uh, biological materialists who had hoped that AI would fail uh, because it wasn't sufficiently aware of progress in neuroscience and cognitive science. Now, in the long run, it might be necessary, by the way. We don't know. The the jury is out. Um, But that's a good example, I think, to your point where the super-ambitious project... In some, in some way, modest in others, um, it's very circumscribed, board games, was more successful. And I think, I think science and, and civilization is made up of both. I mean, I'm, I'm very pluralistic about this. I think that there are people who hammer away at the same problem for years and years and, and discover something miraculous. And then you get the sort of Watson and Cricks who are bored out of their wits um, Watson's bored doing the work he's doing, becoming an ornithologist, and Crick's bored being a water physicist. They both read uh, Schrodinger's What is Life, and within three years they've solved the structure of DNA, right? Much the annoyance of everyone around them who'd been working in chemistry and X-ray crystallography for decades. And I think the history of science is, is just ruthlessly pluralistic with respect to what it takes to make a true advance. You know, I've had uh, Bruce Damer on the show, and he's consulted with NASA and various other space organizations on asteroid mining and, and you know, space colony design, origins of life research. And, you know, he and I kind of share a perspective on this, that the sort of minimum viable product for the enterprise of interplanetary exploration is an entire biosphere, you know, and that you know, in some sense it doesn't, you know... It, it may be kind of a red herring, maybe even, to discuss this as purely interplanetary when there's so many habitable asteroids out there. Put a pin in that for later, maybe. <laughs> but the thing being that it does seem like in part of this shift required of us to live in an ecologically balanced way on the planet, we benefit from and may require and a sort of epistemic shift in which we no longer think of ourselves like you you know you met, you brought this up kind of earlier that that there is no human exceptionalism that but that actually that a human being is sort of just a focal point in an ecosystem and that maybe the ecosystem sort of takes the 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 sort of individual priority and so we move to mars or or wherever we don't we don't leave the earth as human beings per se we leave the earth as biospheres you know, as a self, as totally self-contained. You know, you see this in um, in the fountain, as a you know a really pr- uh, primo example, Darren Aronofsky's film. And I know that you know maybe this is the correct place to to dive into this question because such a big part of interplanetary fest is about science fiction and the science fiction authors and various artists and and you know the the people that are working to help visualize this for everyone i don't know there's there's a couple different points you could pull at that one would be you know the the role of art and and science fiction in this this collaborative endeavor and then one might be how do you think we as individuals are going to have to shift psychologically in order to make this leap yeah it's very interesting i think i mean it's such a deep question i'm not sure i can answer it in an easy way. I think that, uh, I I feel that I have an ecological, to use it metaphorically, uh, perspective on everything, including thought itself. I mean, I mean, it's been pointed out many times, right? The language that I'm using to articulate my thought is not of my own devising. I acquired it from culture. I'm using it, a tool, right? And that concept that we are a kind of intriguing instantaneous aggregation 
of factors, biological, cultural, and so forth, um, that it's very difficult for people to wrap their head around. Um, and why, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, it, it is a fact, though. It is a fact. And I think your point about biospheric uh, space travel is really interesting and probably absolutely necessary. And that sort of interdisciplinary team was the kind of modest version of it, right? It was the conceptual version of it, in a way. Uh, so I think that's right. But your question is, so that, I think, is a fact, by the way. Um, and now with all the microbiome research, it seems to be even more of a fact <laughs> in a very intimate sense. Uh, but why is it that we have such a hard time dealing with it? Why could we shift human self-interest in such a way that um, we could come to appreciate the ecological nature of existence? And I think you could argue that is the history of political movements. I mean... And as you know, I mean, they've been variously successful and unsuccessful. You could, you could absolutely argue that um, one natural contrast between Marxist social political inst socialistic so, uh, political institutions would be an effort to minimize the individual actor in favor of the collective. But we all know that there's a cost to be paid for that path. There's also a cost to be paid for the opposite one, where you only consider your own self-interest and well-being. And I think, in a way, that is the history of our species, constantly wrestling with what should be, in some sense, the fundamental unit of analysis of progress, defined in a myriad different ways, right? I mean, um, economically, socially, health-wise. What I think is happening now, though, by virtue of technology and connectivity, population density, the number of people on the planet, the fact of global warming, is that we're becoming aware of non-local effects in a way that we never were before. You know, when it took weeks and weeks for news story to travel between continents, that was one world. And when it's instantaneous, it's another. And so I think that if you asked me what's exciting now politically, I think that the existing political structures that, that are taught are actually moribund. They're dead in the water. And that we're going to be forced now on this planet to conceive of fundamentally new kinds of political institutions that more accurately reflect empirical reality, right? National boundaries are not what they were, right? They were founded on certain constraints, uh, the constraints of communication, the constraints of resource access, it's, and, and distribution, etc., etc., etc. And I think we're seeing a bit of this, of course, in the whole Bitcoin, blockchain, cryptocurrency debate um, that started off as a very localized means of decentralizing banking services, right? And have become an entirely new way of thinking about accountability and trust uh, from legal systems, you know, contracts on. Um, so, and that is a part of this festival, right? Um, part of the interplanetary conversation is what are the new forms of governance and thought that respect the realities of the constraints of the 21st century and what they're going to look like? I Honestly, I can't say. I mean, but we already know a bit what they look like because we see what's happening to Facebook and we see what role tiny little company that was supposed to be accommodating the social needs of spoilt students at an Ivy League university can possibly derail a democratic process. <laughs> I mean, it's inconceivable. And it's inconceivable for that to have taken place in the span of approximately a decade. Um, and so, of course, we have to be having this conversation. You brought it up, so I'm going to go there. Uh, All right. I've been the resident philosopher for a, a web academy uh, onboarding people into the cryptocurrency universe yeah. this, this year. It's been fascinating to, to talk to people at all stages of their life and development, often people coming in with uh, expertise, you know, really developed expertise in an area and to, you know, catch all of these different perspectives on what is happening. And one of the topics that keeps coming up again and again in these conversations is the relationship between these new cryptographic technologies and distributed ledger accounting with the new modes of governance mm -hmm. the, and the you know these decentralized 
forms of governance, and then also the making resilient the you know hope perhaps hopefully even you know Nassim Taleb talks about anti fragility, you know making it something that actually like an immune system is uh, it, it benefits from being attacked it learns it, it grows it becomes more and more robust. And there's something in here, obviously. The low-hanging fruit is, you know, Elon Musk suggesting we need extraplanetary colonies or settlements as a, a you know, a backup server for the human species. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm curious where else you've, you know, you've been hearing this this thinking on, I mean, you, you already said, no, you know, I don't know what the new modes will, will look like. But yeah. you know that we know that taking a sort of biomimetic approach to robustness, diversity, resilience, and the sort of distributed or decentralized (coughs) architecture is a huge piece of this. So like, how does that, how does that work in all the different projects that you're seeing? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting. So, I mean, the, the first point to make is the Santa Fe Institute was founded to explore this kind of structure, right? In other words, you know, another way of, defining complexity is networks of adaptive agents that's what we study and the history of science and as you know right by and large has been dominated by reductionism which has been incredibly successful i mean this is not a criticism of reductionism and by reductionism i simply mean um the way you understand an object is by taking it apart and that's great and that's true that's often how we understand things But you only get a partial understanding by doing that. And there's another way of understanding something, and that is by building it up again. I would argue that the person who really understands a radio is not the one who can take it apart with a hammer, but the one who can reconstruct it and make it work. That's what we would call emergence. It's the other way, right? Um, And so now, uh, that's what we've been studying. And we've been studying emergence in these highly distributed systems, like the brain, you know, 86 billion neurons, Each of them looks like a little bacterium on their own, and yet together can do what we're doing now. Talk via Skype or, you know, compose symphonies or whatever you are impressed by. Um, How does that work? And moreover, how is it that when you chop that thing in half, you sever the corpus callosum so that you have two hemispheres, I can't even tell, right? Or you can put a rod through the front of someone's prefrontal cortex, in the famous case of Phineas Gage, and they continue walking around. Um, Whereas if I drop a bit of coffee on my keyboard, the whole thing fizzles and dies. So there is something about these decentralized systems with interesting emergent properties that has made them very robust. And we've been studying that for 30 years. (laughs) What are the fundamental principles that allow that to happen? that allow them to be coordinated um, it's, and to be adaptable, right? Because one of the great paradoxes of robustness is if you're too robust, you never change. <laughs> yes. So there's this very interesting evolvability, robustness trade-off. That, and so you always want to be in that sweet spot, right, where you can do both. So that's sort of what we do. Interestingly, that you mentioned that in relation to cryptocurrencies and public ledgers, We've been talking to a number of developers of those in the last year because they've been asking us at the Santa Fe Institute, look, we're flying by the seat of our pants. There are no tools for the principal development of token systems. And I'm just an ingenious young hacker who became interested in this when I was 11. And I've developed this new currency and it's fantastic. What I would really love to have is a set of tools and concepts that would allow me to make better, more robust, more adaptable versions of the system I've built. So it's no surprise, perhaps, to you that Ethereum (laughs) is sponsoring our Computational Sciences Summer School. They're interested in using network theory, um, agent-based modeling, um, theories of collective computation, uh, ideas out of the theory of scale, to do exactly that. And so I'm very resonant with this discussion because what we're really seeing here is a beautiful merger of the science of the future, which I would argue is complexity science, with the social structures of the future, 
the economy of the future. Um, and presumably, the hybrid systems of the future, which would include a world where humans and computational devices are seamlessly integrated, which raises questions I've worried about a lot, and not all positive, um, well, need new ideas uh, and new ways of thinking about those problems. And I don't think that the sciences of the 19th and 20th century are adequate. Um, I, I don't think they've given us the right tools to work on this problem at this scale. You know, a big piece of that sort of inadequacy seems to be in the, you know, when we're talking about these vastly complex problems, one of the things is that we know that we're only, you know, that the variables in the equation are only the ones we notice and that there's always <laughs> another hidden variable. There's always, you know, when I, when I had um, a friend of mine, Sophia Rockland on the show, and I was talking to her about ecosystem services, the idea that an acre of rainforest might be worth, you know, X amount in the global economy. And then the question is, yeah, but what is it doing? You know, like, how do we actually measure that worth? And so it becomes really puzzling when you get into into questions like this, the issue of like, what am I missing? What am I not noticing? What do I forget? You know, here, like, what am I not capable of perceiving? And, you know, there seems to be, I guess in this case, the question is, what question am I asking? Well, I would say, it's no, because here's an example. One of my criticisms of that community that you're engaging with now is that they're too technologically obsessed. And, you know, my tendency is to say, which novel did you read most recently? <laughs> and in other words, this, we need to enrich the dialogue. And what we don't want to happen is for this to become a purely software engineering problem, because it's not. It, now, the folks working in this area know that, right? Because they're, they're, as you said, they're articulating it as the next socio-political, socio-economic revolution. But if that's true, then we need to engage with those ideas. We need to read Hume and we need to read Locke and we need to read Montesquieu, etc. right? So I think um, what we're missing is turning a truly transformational moment in the history of the planet into an engineering problem. I mean, that would be missing a lot. And, um, and I, again, it's part of the role of SFI and by extension, the interplanetary project and festival to remind everyone of that, right? I mean, it's, I mean, if you have, you're coming, right? If you have on a panel someone who's coming from philosophy and someone who's coming from software engineering and from literature, you're not going to be allowed to forget that, <laughs> right? You'll be reminded that there are knock-on implications of this that might be undesirable. And in fact, even 180 degrees incompatible with your fundamental ethical beliefs. And we need to have that kind of sophisticated, nuanced discussion. Um, and so part of our job, my job, SFI's, the festival's job, is to not allow people to imagine that um, they're living in isolation in any sense, <laughs> right? Um, socially, intellectually, economically, technologically, and so on. Yeah, so that's... Uh looping back into the question of the festival's involvement of so many badass science fiction authors, you know, Cory Doctorow, Neil Stevenson, Annalee Newitz, and then you've got the scientists and so on. But looking through the panel descriptions here and, you know, appreciating that these are largely discussions rather than the sort of like TED format, like one person on stage type deal, and that the way that these conversations have been framed is as a series of questions. Yeah. You know, I, I just a constant sort of divergent opening to better, richer questions. I'm curious how you see the role of art in this as a whole, because obviously the conversation is important and valued for its own goal, but then you've got people like Neil Stevenson who have sort of, you know, with his project hieroglyph at ASU, he's kind of saying, whoa, 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 like all of this is dystopian, like this, this science fiction in, in a, alone isn't really serving us. There need to be more kinds of visions of the future. And yeah, I, I, I'm one of those people who really doesn't believe or doesn't much enjoy the art versus science or art-science debate. And I'll tell you why, and, there's a, and it's very practical. Um, the way I think about it is, in any creative endeavor, there's a stage 
when you're just imagining, um, you're just exploring possibilities and you're doing your due diligence and you're reading the literature and you're just filling your mind with possible ideas, right? And, and then there's a stage of execution. And the stage of execution um, is, I'm going to design this experiment, I'm going to use this apparatus, I'm going to use this paint color, and I'm going to use this canvas, and I'm going to use this film stock, and I'm going to use this camera. The Santa Fe Institute is in the startup phase of conception. We aren't very big. Our job is to provide the world with new ideas. The world can then go off and scale them up. And the world has to worry about what camera to use and what paint to use and what canvas to use and so on. We don't. Now, we do to some extent. but And if you think about art and science now in relation to those remarks, in the early phases, there is no distinction between an artist and a scientist. In the early phases, we're all worrying about concepts like novelty. Where does a new idea come from? How do I know that I'm not just conforming to a set of pre-existing beliefs and constraints? Who should I talk to to get insight into this difficult problem that I'm stuck on? Those are common. When you get to the later stages of scaling out a, up a project with a scientific method, whatever that might mean, um, needs to be applied, when you're doing experiments and you're doing replication, at that stage, the differences between the arts and sciences become very obvious. Um, the notion of objective consensus, which is so critical in science, as opposed to the maverick iconoclastic desire of an artist whose one painting wants to offend the audience, right, uh, in order to force them to think in different ways. So I, I think I've always felt that by virtue of where we sit in this kind of epistemological spectrum or path, SFI is much less concerned with the differences. And so when I sit down with Neil, as I have to discuss interplanetary at length, and it was Neil's idea to come up with this idea of training future planetologists, which was sort of part of the framing of the project, there is no difference. I mean, how are we going to do this? What are the key ideas? What are our ambitions? What kind of mind do we need in the room? What kind of ideas have to be represented? Down the line, you know, I might be working on some theory for information processing in some form of matter. That happens to be what I work on. And Neil might happen to be either running his latest Mathematica notepad to work out some celestial orbit of some <laughs> asteroid he's interested in, or writing a novel, right? Um, there's where we diverge at the level of, at the point of execution, but we're convergent at that point of exploration. And I don't want to make this appear, you know, totally harmonious. It's just I do think there's been too much emphasis on difference. And so given, as you pointed out, that this is not one of those risible TED Talks, but actually um, a conversation where we're accepting that we're living with uncertainty and ambiguity, and we don't know the answer. And that's where we are. Then I just want smarts. <laughs> it's as simple as that. I mean, it's no mystery. And I actually think, I will be honest, I mean, I'm not a fan of TED, and I'm willing to say that here, because I think it presents a view of science which is a bit dishonest. I mean, very dishonest, in fact. Um, it's all a done deal. It's all hermetically sealed. It's all beautifully presented as if the problem has been solved by one person. And I'm not in the slightest bit interested in that. It's vastly more interesting to say, how do we del what is the problem? <laughs> how do we think about this? How are we going to possibly make any progress on this? And who should we have with us to help? That's the phase that we're interested in. And that's what interplanetary in some sense is about. It is not the other one. So there's always the Pandora's box follow-up, right? Which is, I've been to my hand, you know, my share of festivals and conferences and seminars where you go to this thing and you get super inspired and you get, you know, the download of some new whole set of techniques that you're excited to deploy and you meet all of these amazing people and then you go home and you're back in your normal thing. And yes. the issue of follow-up and of integration, I think, is a really important one. And it, it's obvious that your team and this project, you know, this festival is happening 
you know, associated with a, you know, an institution that exists year round. It's not just like a, a, a desert flower as it No, were. no, exactly. But I'm sure that you have then a, a good answer for what happens after this conversation. You know, what happens after you open the box at, you know, in, on June 7th and 8th and all the confetti comes out and all the great questions are asked. Then what? Yeah. Like, what do you do with all these poor schmucks that, like, you know, go home and... I know. It, no, it's a very good question. And, and I, again, I don't claim to know the answer, but it's certainly something we've thought about very hard. Um, so there are two answers to this, at least at this point in time. So the Interplanetary Festival is part of the Interplanetary Project. And the project is, a, in addition to the festival, a whole set of online permanently available citizen science platforms. We're building them now. They don't exist yet. We're, we're sort of festival first, right? Um, we could have been platform first, but we didn't want to be. We couldn't be, actually. So the idea here is that the way that we're conceiving of this largely is to get to Neil's question about how would you train a planetologist? It's kind of a really interesting question, right? And it's got, you know, echoes of Frank Herbert's Dune, right? And um, you'd say, well, clearly they would need to understand trade. They would need to understand energy systems. They would need to understand the intelligent systems that are supporting the planet. That could be literature, um, it could be libraries, um, it could be the internet, right? And you can go on proliferating these. What kind of ecosystems would be robust and so on? So we're calling those planetary life support systems. And one could come up with a list of them. And we've come up with a list of 8 to 10. Someone else could come up with a list of 20 to 30. It's, it's great. And um, each of those life support systems is going to be a citizen science platform with data sets bearing on that particular question. So if it was the global economic system, we're going to have, think of a subreddit or a, a wiki, where you have folks making contributions. What's the latest in cryptocurrencies, how are they working? Are they scalable? Everyone pointed out Bitcoin was not, right? And so how do you make it scalable, etc., etc. So that's part of the way that we're going to make this permanent because the festival is an opportunity for those people who have taken part in those online life support systems to meet each other. And for people who haven't, I mean, it's very important to, to us that you don't have to have done this and they don't exist yet. So by definition, you have no choice. But that's a big way in which we want to do it. And I think that will be a first. It will be a festival that has two completely different faces. There's the public face, which is fun. and It's got music and film and literature and panels and discussion and questing after these difficult problems. But it will also have this online life, building communities who either could not be there, present, in, couldn't afford to be there, couldn't travel to get there, didn't have the time to be there, but who can also contribute. And that was extremely important. So I think that's the most important answer to your question. The other answer to your question is, is the, the Santa Fe Institute's fundamental belief in the virtues of distributed systems. You know, it's very important to point out that this is not a festival that you have to pay for, right? This is not you don't have to be specially invited. Um, this is not Davos, right? This is not where you go to meet other people that you can hobnob with and send photographs home to your mother to show you how important you are. And this is a totally different concept. This is a much more engaged and involved and inclusive idea because we want to harness collective intelligence, not just collective bank accounts. Okay. <laughs> so the... All right. Um, because of that, if you said to me, you know... I want to build, and this is put to me actually by one of our uh, external professors, Simon Judeo, why couldn't there be a fringe interplanetary, like the fringe at Edinburgh? So there's the Edinburgh Festival, and then there's the fringe, Edinburgh Fringe Festival. And by now, the Fringe Festival is bigger than the festival, right? You don't go to Edinburgh for the festival, right? You go for the fringe. And we would do everything in our power to support those communities that are fringe to interplanetary. I don't mean fringe ideas in the sense of being wacky, which would be interesting in some sense, but uh, communities that feel inspired by what we're trying to do and build their own. And um, we're not trying to protect a brand here. We're not trying to control it. We're trying to inspire. And in the modern world, 
I think inspiration in part takes a form of these slightly anarchic, maverick communities that spin out um, their own version of the idea. And so I think that would be another way where we'd be different. We'd be encouraging of that, not discouraging of it. You know, just listening to you talk about this and knowing that the platform remains largely undeveloped and knowing that you're working with an Ethereum aegis on development, I wonder if it wouldn't be possible to create a blockchain-based forum that actually rewards people for participating in the quorum sensing and the communal problem solving of this thing and that you know everybody like you know the way that quora you know you 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 accumulate a reputation capital but there are ways to reward people who you know like i have friends that work with the blockchain platform steam it and you know in the united states it's it's been relatively easy for my friends to accumulate enough influence on that platform that they're able to upvote and therefore donate ten twenty dollars to the posts of some some developing world artists and basically feed that person for a week simply by liking their post. And so I feel like there's a way that you could even create like an economic incentive for the people that are normally sort of excluded from these conversations to participate. Exactly. Uh, You know, I know, but you're, no, but this is, you know, this is exactly right. I mean, that's why, by the way, the festival is before the platform (laughs) precisely because no, but you're right. This is what we need to discuss. And I know that Cory Doctorow is particularly feels strongly about many of these issues. And I think this is precisely the direction that we want to go in, which is now that we've had this experience of starting to build a community around, I think, a genuinely worthwhile project um, that hopefully is not Plan B, is not irresponsible, is very aspirational, is very inclusive, but has a foundation in really fascinating new scientific ideas. Um, what can we do that's different and to, to extend it to the whole planet? It's a very interplanetary platform, right? And it ought to be, as you said, exactly, um, using some of these recent um, breakthroughs in creating distributed trust and community. So I, I'm 100% behind that idea. The question is, how do we pull it off? That is the, 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 the question, isn't it? The one billion Bitcoin question. I like to end these episodes by inviting guests to muse a little bit. You know, like if if we're taking this podcast rhetorically as an artifact left for the people studying this time, you know, studying, you know, what we were thinking about, what we were kind of questions we were asking, what we wanted to to see happen. I feel like part of the the value for these unborn historians or archaeologists will be in laughing with ironic hipster detachment at the utopias that we were trying to create, right? So I love inviting, and I would like to invite you, uh, people to to say, well, what are you actually working toward? Like, what like what is it like to live in the world that you hope that we have in another hundred years or two hundred years? Yeah. What does that feel like to live there? What does that look like? I don't. First of all, I want to say I don't think we have enough utopian thinking not enough of it people are too cynical and they pretend they're not cynical by calling it pragmatic okay so i i'm i'm there couldn't be enough utopian thinking as far as i'm concerned okay with with caveats all right but with that said i think i feel very very fortunate right in so many ways i've been exposed to amazing ideas incredible people and i see those ideas have amazing power and we've seen them. I mean, the Santa Fe Institute was instrumental in the development of network theory. It's everywhere. It's everywhere, in good and bad ways, and so on. I think that it, a success for me would be a world where a fact was a fact. <laughs> um, I'm not being political. Um, where people could be reasonable, mentally pluralistic, and rigorous. I think the educational system in the I- was trying to do this. I mean, schools are trying to do this. Universities are trying to do this. But I think they're not succeeding. And we can see, if we look at the world today and the political t- turmoil and the genuine risk, I think, of loss of life at scales which are unprecedented, they're not succeeding. And in a, in a sense, it is utopian because the Interplanetary Project is saying, is there a different way now of getting the best of what we have done 
to as many people as we possibly can. And in a way that isn't preachy, isn't didactic, is genuinely engaging and fun. Um, and where a single individual somewhere in the world who we've never met, who has limited resources, could make a real contribution to it. It's utopian, but if that turned out to be true, right? If that happened, that's my notion of success. Mm. That's beautiful. David, thank you so much for being on the show. It was a pleasure. And I'm going to see you at Interplanetary, so and we can discuss how we, how we create this platform. Fantastic. Totally. Where, where would you send people before we sign out? Where do you want people to, to go? Go to uh, interplanetaryfest.org. Go to the webpage because it'll, it'll show you how fun this is going to be. And really, it's for everyone. It's for all ages. Um, it'll be accessible. You don't have to spend a lot of money. You do have to get here, unfortunately. But uh, in the future, we'll just bring you here by um, some kind of transport device. <laughs> <laughs> <Perfect>. <laughs> Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. Future Fossils is part of the MindPod network, along with Third Eye Drops, The Astral Hustle, Synchronicity Podcast, and an oodle of other fascinating programs. I encourage you to go to mindpodnetwork.com and subscribe to them all. And stay tuned, because we have some awesome episodes coming up on Future Fossils. Meanwhile... I hope you have a lovely, very long now. <laughs> <laughs>